Our scripture lesson is found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. I hope you have a testament and that you will turn and follow the passage with us. I'm not going to take the time to read the passage because I would like to read all of the first chapter and uh, I think we can draw from it without reading it, but I hope that you will look at the chapter when you get home and take a few minutes and see the way it, see the way the message fits in with it. Recently in chapel we were speaking from the book of Philippians and said that one of the wonderful things about it is that here is a place where we get a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul. It is a very tender and a very personal epistle written by the Apostle to a group of Christians whom he had come to love very dearly. They had had a, a strategic influence in his life and at a, partic at a particularly strategic time. They were apparently in many ways a model church and so he wrote to them as friends and as brothers, people whom he respected and people whom he loved. One of the beautiful things we said about it is that here you get, as it were, the cover taken off the heart of the Apostle and you can see what it is that moves him, what motivates him, what makes him what he is. And in this first chapter, you get a glimpse of his faith, his faith in God and God's relationship to himself, his faith in God and God's relationship to his circumstances, and his faith in God and God's relationship to his own individual life, in what to me are beautiful examples of the kind of teachings that I need in order to live a Christian life and that I think perhaps you need. What is the confidence that will make a man as great a Christian as Paul was? I want you to notice first, verse 6. In verse 5, he speaks and leads into it for your fellowship. He said, I, I've been in, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. I don't know about you, but it's always been easier for me to believe God for someone else than it has been for Dennis Kenlaw. And it's always been easier for me to believe him in terms of the past than it has been in terms of the future. And I can look back and think with great joy and with great blessing about how marvelously God has led in my life up to the moment. And if we had a testimony meeting, I might be very quick to tell you how faithful God has been to me in the past. But then one turns one's face toward the future, that unknown, with all the uncertainties within it. And I don't know about you, but that's the time that again and again I have found a bit of fear creeping in, something within me quailing, and I wondered if I would ever make it. Now, there are some people who have a certain amount of security in the, the doctrines that they believe and in the theology that they understand is biblical. There are some people who believe that once a man is converted, the minute he is born of God, he's in the family of God, and there's no way that that relationship can ever be broken. So he's automatically, mechanically secured, and the future is taken care of. Life may not be all that he would like, but at least his eternal destiny is secure. As one who finds great difficulty finding that anywhere in the scripture, I don't have that comfort. So that gives me more reason at times to say, wait a minute, what future is there for a person like me? Now notice what Paul says. Being 
confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know what that means to anybody else, but I know what it means to me. It means that as I look back in my life and see that it was not I who started my pathway toward God, God started his pathway toward me and took the initiative to reach me. And then after he had redeemed me again and again when I found myself tending to wander away, he put in my pathway circumstances and people and conditions that brought me back to him and caused me to seek him afresh. So that today I can look back in over 40 years, I can know what it means to see how God has led and kept me in those days. Paul is older now, and he's speaking, and he is saying, God has remarkably brought me to this point. And I know that he loved me as much today as he did back then when he started. And he will love me next month and next year and as long as I live as much as he's ever loved me. And those same pressures that he has brought to bear upon me to bring me to himself and to sustain me thus far, he will continue to bring those pressures, that type of pressure to bear upon me to take me safely home to himself. So he says, really, I look forward to the future confidently because I know what he has done in my life in the past. Unmerited, I did not deserve it. Oftentimes I did not seek it, but he came, he sought me, he pursued me, he won me, he kept me, and I believe that he will keep that kind of activity in my life in the days that are ahead just as he has in the days that are past. I don't know how old I was, but one day it dawned on me that God loves Christians just as much as he does sinners. And he's just as interested in saving Christians as he is in saving sinners. And he's not looking for a chance to run away from a person who has any desire for him. He's not looking for a chance to run away from anybody. He's looking for a chance to run deep into his own life and invade that person's being and never let him go. And so Paul says, yes, when the revival's over with, we're in the midst of uh, all the academic pressures that are going to be here, social pressures that will be here, other pressures that come and go. God's not going to stop working when the revival is over. He worked before the revival. He's brought you to this place, and he is going to keep on that same kind of divine initiative in your life. And so he says, I look forward to the future with confidence. And he says, you friends at Philippi, you fellow Christians, you should trust him too for the days that are ahead. You know, I think that's what was behind the hymn writers through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And as you look back, it has been through dangers, toils, and snares that he has brought you. But if you're in his hands tonight, and if you're in his grace, and if you belong to him, if you're in his family, you're there because of his activity, and the God who's been at work in your life will continue to work. And so he says, you know, I have confidence in God in relation to myself. He trusted him. Sometimes my friends, my Baptist friends say to me, how do you have any security if you don't believe in the doctrine of eternal security? Once in grace, always in grace. And I say, well, Elsie and I have been married for 32 years, and it's possible for us to end up in the divorce court, but you know, I've never thought twice about that. I know how she loves me, and I know the kind of relationship that has developed thus far, and what she's put up with me, and her patience, and all of these other things. 
And I know my love and commitment to her. I want her. And I want her as much now as I did the day I married her. And I have a suspicion I want her more. And I need her more. I don't envision any problem in that. Because I know her. And I know my need. Now Paul was talking something like that. Out of the, out of the depth of his own heart. God has brought me thus far. It's amazing. It hasn't been my faithfulness. It hasn't been my uh, goodness. It hasn't been these other things primarily, though I've tried to walk with him. It's been his activity in my life. And as I've responded to it, he's kept me and led me on. And so he said, I live in hope and faith. But now, second thing. In spite of all the weaknesses in you, and in spite of all the weaknesses in me, there's a greatness and a power and a faithfulness and a love in God, and we can trust him at certain points. Not trust him when we rebel, not trust him when we resist, not trust him when we say, I don't want you in my life, but we can trust him that he will keep working, working, working at our lives. Okay. Now notice the second thing in verse 12. Paul is in prison, and he is suffering for his faith in Christ. And he says, Now, brethren, I want you to understand that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So he says that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bond. But the other preached Christ of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. I notice this climax of this paragraph. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice verse 12? I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Don't worry too much about the weaknesses in me if I keep my eyes on his faithfulness and his commitment to me. And I really don't worry too much looking around me at my circumstances because he is a God of those circumstances and he really is in sovereign control of them. And I'm sitting here in prison, and it's not like being among some of you that are fellow believers and enjoying the fellowship of a Christian home with its securities and its pleasures. But he said, you know, I don't worry about where I am because I'm not here by accident. The Romans may think they put me here, but in the Ephesian letter in chapter 3 he spoke and he says, I want you to know that I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and I am here by his sovereign will. You go through the life of Paul, and I think you will find that he sees the circumstances that are in his life as having been ordered by God. And so he can't be bitter at life, and he can't be bitter at the people who mistreat him and do these other things to him, because God has permitted these things, and he says, out of my imprisonment will come my salvation and the glory of God, and that's all that I'm really concerned about, so he says, God rules, and God rules in the circumstances of my life, and so I do not have to fear about them. My life and my circumstances are occasions for God to advance his cause, and that's what I really am concerned about. Now, that's tremendous faith, isn't it? 
matter what happens to you, you turn and you take it as from God. Because if he really is sovereign, it could not have happened without his permission. And he does not let anything touch his child except for the good of his child and the glory of the name of his son. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could live your life that way? So that everything that comes in every day, you could say, thank you, Lord. Everything that comes, that doesn't mean that you enjoy it. That doesn't mean that it's your choosing. That doesn't mean that some of it is not evil. But God has permitted it to come, and you know that he can make the wrath of men to praise him. And what's happening around you and to you, he will use if you permit him and if you believe for his own glory. Now, you know, uh, I believe that's true in the overall thing, in terms of circumstances in a person's life. But I got a glimpse of this during the fall, revi- fall retreat with the faculty that, in a way that I had never seen before. I would gotten some intimation of it, but it came home more clearly. The speaker who was speaking to our retreat, Pastor Baptist Church in Titusville, Florida, he brought us here in the auditorium. And he came in, and when he came in, he came in with a small plastic glass about like this, about half full of water. And he uh, carried that around. He looked sort of stupid, you know, walking around here and used with a glass of water as we were waiting for the time to begin. And he looked at me and he said, would anybody feel uh, upset if I put it on the altar here? And I said, no, we won't be disturbed. I wondered what he was going to do with that glass of water. And so uh, he started speaking. And after he'd spoken a little bit, he picked up, turned and picked the glass of water up, and he said, now, uh, I need somebody to help me. And he turned and called a young lady to come and help him, and he held that glass in his hand, and he said, now, you take uh, your hands and put them on my arm. He said, both hands. And he said, you hold my arm tightly. And now he said, shake real hard. And water spilled everywhere. And there we sat, a whole bunch of us sitting here in Hughes, and... Uh, Then he looked at her and said, wonder why that spilled water. So they banded that around a while, and finally they decided it spilled water because there was water in it. And you know, stupid me, I was saying, what's he going to do with that? And then he said, "Uh, you know, that's a parable for you and me about ourselves. God puts around us individuals as well as circumstances that shake us. And when those individuals and circumstances shake us, certain things come out. But he said, you know, nothing can come out that isn't in there. And he said, you know, you look at a woman and say, she made me lost. He said, she didn't make you lost. She just jostled out what was already in there. He said, you say, that person irritated me said, that person didn't irritate you. That person just jostled you and the irritation that was already there came out. That person didn't make you jealous. That person just jostled you and the jealousy. Well, then, of course, I knew very well where he was going. And he proceeded with that. He said, nothing can be jostled out of you which is not already in there. Now, he said, those people that jostle you are really God's precious gift to you. He said, they're God's gift to you to let you know who you are and what you've got in there and to let you know what you need from God. So God lets those people come into your life that irritate you 
to get you to the place where you can let him take the irritation, the irritability out. God lets those people come into your life to make you jealous so that then you can see your need and you can let him purge the jealousy from your heart. God lets those people come into your life who make you angry and then you can see your need to have the Holy Spirit come in his purging, cleansing power to take that out of you so then he can make you what he wants you to be. So those people in your circumstances, as well as those circumstances, as we think of happenings in our lives and events, God permits all of these for our own good, for our own redemption. And you know, I believe that's true. And that means that that's true, that you can never snap back at anything or body in your life. But you have to look and say, what did God permit that person in my life for? And then it's a matter between you and God and not between you and that person. That would change human relationships substantially, wouldn't it? I appreciated something else he said at that point. He said, did you ever notice how all the saints that you know, the great saints that you know, live a hundred miles or more from Wilmore? He said, uh, you see them coming back and forth across the platform here in the chapel? And he said, they're great saints. He said, uh, they live always somewhere else. He said, if you could just live with them long enough, you'd find they're about as great as the people that are sitting next to you, right around you. And then he said, you know, when I leave, some of you will look at me and say, I'm going to pray for you, Mr. Lord. He said, that's not your business. He said, I'm not a part of your family. Your business is to carry in your heart the people that are immediately around you, the people that are sitting here in youth auditorium. He said, they're God's gift, God's gift to you, and you're God's gift to them, so that all of you can be perfected in the image of God's dear Son. So thank God for each other and commit yourselves to each other so that you can learn through each other from God what he has for you and he can perfect his work in your heart. And you know, I believe that's Pauline preaching. He looks at the chains and says, if God didn't want them there, they wouldn't be there. Now, God didn't put them on me. Romans put them on me and they're responsible for that. They'll have to answer to God. But if God didn't want them on there, he would not have permitted them. Now, I take this as an opportunity from him and glorify him. That's what it, that's what it means to, to sanctify daily life, isn't it? And it means that you have to be receptive to life as it comes to you. And receptive in the spirit of Christ that it might be an occasion of grace for you. All right. Now that brings me to the third thing. That's in verse 21. Look at verse 19, 20, and 21. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed and that with all boldness as always, so now also, now here, Christ, shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. Now what's his concern? It is that in all the jostlings of life, Christ might be magnified in him. Whether
whether it's by life or by death. If it means having his head chopped off or fed to the lions, that's all right. He's reached the point now where his chief end is the glorification, the magnification of the name of Christ, that Christ might be magnified. His life is not his own. It belongs to God, and God can spend it the way he pleases. And then he says this, and it's an affirmation that I do not think for a moment I have ever begun to plumb. But, uh, and one of the things I want to ask Paul when I see him is all that he meant by this, but look at it. He says, for me, to live is Christ. And in the Greek text, if you look, the verb is is not there, it's just an equality. For to me, and an infinitive, to live Christ. What a statement. And I think when he says that, he's talking about something that is not beyond the possible for you or for me. That if it was possible for Paul to come to the place where to live is Christ, it's possible for me to come to the place where to live is Christ. Now, what does he mean when he says, for me, to live, that's Christ. I think it certainly means that for him, what he was seeking in life, the third chapter he says, that I might know him. That's the chief end of my being, that I might know him. For me to live is Christ. But you know, I notice by the preceding verse that he may have given a definition to it that is of a different twist. He says, that whether by life or by death, I might glorify him, that Christ might be magnified in my body. Why? I think he may be saying so that my life or somebody else might be Christ. Christ might be life for me, but my life for somebody else might be Christ. And as I read the Apostle Paul, I find that I find again and again, it seems to me that that notion runs underneath his verbalization. That if you and I, if your life and mine, they do not bear Christ and present Christ to other people, both in word and example, other people will never know who he is or what he is. Now, that's a sobering thing, isn't it? Have you ever thought that you might be responsible for being an illustration to your roommate of what Christ really is? Now, Paul is saying, for me, my life is Christ. Whether by life or by death, he will be magnified in me that people will look at me and they will glorify Christ because of the way I live. I will be nothing more than a sign, a pointer, pointing to him. And when people live about me and when people look at me, their minds will be moved to the one who is my life. They will see Christ. Now that's uh, pretty heady stuff, isn't it? But you know, I don't think you and I can quite afford to uh, take anything less than that. You say, well now, what would that really mean? I think it would mean coming to the place, the thing we've been talking about on other nights, where my life is lost in him and his life becomes my life 
my way no longer is lived out in me, but Christ's way is lived out in me. And Paul could say, you be an example to others as I have been an example to you. It's hard for us to say that, but that's what he said. And I think that some of, some of that is being said here. Now, I'd like to take tonight just a few practical things in terms of living in human relationships in the dormitory, in the cafeteria, in the classroom, on the campus, in what it means to let my way be lost and his way reign within my personality and within my circumstances, within my situation. You know, I believe if you come to the place where you lose your life in him, there's some things that you're not bound by anymore. Most of us are slaves. We're slaves to certain ideals and certain concerns. And they bind us the way alcohol binds an alcoholic or the way heroin binds the heroin addict. Little things like in your circumstances and in your group. Are you the kind of person that you can't afford ever to do anything except always look good? And no matter what's happening, whatever the exchange, when you come out, you're just very uneasy if you can't come out looking good. Why do you have to look good? Isn't that one of the reasons that we criticize other people? Because you see, if I can run the other guy down, by comparison, there's no way I can push me up. So if I can't do that, maybe I can pull the other guy down. That makes me look a little better. You stop when you begin to criticize. And say, why am I doing this? And check your motive to see if there's something selfish in it. And there's something for your ego to gain by it. Why are we always so quick to defend ourselves? We're bound and enslaved for the idea that we can't afford to make mistakes. And we can't afford to be wrong. So when we've done something that somebody else doesn't understand, we've got to quickly come to our own rescue and clear the record so everybody knows exactly why we did it. Why? Because we are just not free to walk away with that other person thinking that we did something wrong or didn't do something as well as it should have been done. One of the greatest sermons that I ever read was a sermon by A.W. Tozer in which he said uh, one of the things that he said as a goal in his life was that he would never defend himself. Have you gotten close enough to God that you can put your reputation in his hand? Do what he wants you to do? without explanation and without defense? Why is it that if we do anything good, 
We always have to get the credit for it. Do you ever notice you do something good and somebody thinks somebody else did it, and when you note that somebody thinks that person thinks somebody else did it, how quickly there is something inside you that just rises up you want him to know? Now, you may sit on it enough that you may not mention it. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could be free enough that when you've done something good and somebody else gets the credit, you could say, isn't that fine? Why do we have to get the credit? Have you ever noticed how most of us pick our friends? You walk in the cafeteria. You know, there are some people that some other people can't sit with because it would damage their image. Pretty precarious image, isn't it? If eating with you damages my image, it doesn't say very much for me, does it? Suppose Jesus had moved through life that way. The best stories in the gospel wouldn't be told. You wouldn't know about the woman at the well, for sure. You wouldn't know about Mary Magdalene. You wouldn't know about Simon the Pharisee because there were a lot of people who didn't like him. You wouldn't know about Zacchaeus. Whom would you know about? When you pick your friend, your associate, why do you pick them? When you date the girls that you date or the fellows that you date, is it ego defense? Why is it that some of us are never free to do anything except to win? And you know, I know no greater bondage than that. There has never been an entrenched evil in society that was overcome, except somebody challenged it who was willing to lose. I read in the newspaper, I don't know whether it was today or yesterday, about the death of Senator Paul Douglas from Illinois. Douglas was the kind of fellow, he was a professor who, when the Second World War came along, enlisted and was uh, uh, in the Marine Corps. And uh, for a while was regular, just another Marine. And then, before the war was out, uh, his own gifts and abilities had given him promotion. But when he came out, he ran for the United States Senate. His politics didn't always agree with mine, but there was one thing that I will never forget about him. If he believed something was right, it didn't matter whether ten people in the United States Senate agreed with him or not, or one person. He'd stand up and speak. I'll never forget, have wiped out of my memory, those were the first days of television when uh, Harry Truman was running for president in, in the Democratic National Convention. Paul Douglas was fighting him, and he was trying to get the floor, trying to get the, the microphone, trying to get the speaker's attention. And the speaker knew he was trying to get his attention, and he didn't want to 
give Paul Douglas the floor. He had a withered arm. I can still see him on television, standing way out in the remote recesses of that fantastically big hall in Chicago and screaming, Mr. Speaker, with that bad arm, Mr. Speaker. A lot of his politics I didn't agree with, but I always appreciated a man that could take a stand on an issue when he knew the chances were he probably wasn't going to win. But when he lost, he could sleep at night with a good conscience. That's a free man. But there are many of us, you know, we can't do that. That's the reason some fellows never ask a girl for a date. Do you know that? Because she might say no. And that would be too destructive to a fellow's ego. You know, I don't believe you're ever free until you can lose. If Paul had been trying to be a winner in the world's eyes, he wouldn't be sitting in prison here, would he? He would have played it very differently. But he said, really, I've lost control of my life. I'm going to do what Christ wants me to and do what's right. Now, let me ask you, to what extent are you the victim of that? You have to always look good. You know, really, when you get right down to it, what we're talking about is simply a matter of whose eyes you want to look good in, isn't it? Because what we're talking about is playing to the crowd instead of playing to Christ. But if any man is ever going to see Christ in my life, I have to come to the place where I play not to the crowd, but I play to him and live for him. He's my first concern. Then when he, to please him, is my first concern, then I may not come out the way the flesh I might like, but the one thing I can be sure about is if it is possible for a man's life to glorify Christ, that life will glorify Christ then. And it seems to me that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, do you know how much I believe in Christ? I believe in Christ enough and have enough confidence in him, have the confidence in him, that if I put him central in my life, and determined to live for him whatever he wants, that he'll take a man that says, do you know what Paul was like in the flesh? I expect Paul was about as unbearable as any man you ever met. I have a suspicion he was as arrogant and as haughty as any man that ever came down the pike. He could run roughshod over anybody that got in his way. He could stand by and cheer while they martyred a man like Stephen. And he could go with the documents in his pocket to kill good people right and left. There was a haughtiness about him. You know, I think it was a tremendous venture of faith for Paul to say, Do you know, I believe that God can reflect meekness even in me. I believe that God can reflect humility even in me. I believe that God can reflect love even in me and that my life can become Christ. Now, you know, if uh, that's true, you come to a place where you don't have to flaunt your difference. You don't have to parade your religion. 
You don't have to do anything except keep, except keep looking to him and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then you can leave the consequences in his hand. And when it's over with, he will have borne his witness through you. To a roommate, to a husband, to a teacher, to a student, to a friend, or to somebody who isn't a friend. But the only way that can be done is where the life of Christ is your life and his love fills and flows through you. But you know, uh, I believe that's possible. I believe it's possible biblically, and I believe it's because of experience. You know, I've seen people whose lives reflected him. One of the reasons I believe in the doctrinal teaching on entire sanctification is I've seen people who came to the point where their lives were captivated by love. And if you spilled them, that's what would come out. I was in a meeting with a friend of mine, an Asbury preacher, many years ago. And he was an old-fashioned revival, and we had services twice a day, and we ran them for ten days. And when you have services twice a day in a small church for ten days, you get to know the church and the people pretty well. I remember that in the morning sessions we had a Bible study and then a time of sharing, and then we had a time of prayer together around the altar. I got acquainted with a lady in that uh, those morning services that uh, was to be a profound influence on me during those weeks. She had the loudest set of false teeth I've ever heard. First time I heard her pray, I never heard a thing she prayed except her false teeth. It just made me, you know, very uneasy and nervous and embarrassed. First time I heard her testify, you know, it just embarrassed me hard. Clickety-clack, clickety-click-click-clack, and that's all I heard. But you know, as that meeting went on, it was interesting. Those teeth got less noticeable and less noticeable. And before the meeting was over, I'd forgotten she had false teeth. After one of the morning services, she came to me and she said to me, uh, Mr. Kenlaw, she said, I have some neighbors that I'm very concerned about. She said, I've prayed for them for a long time. I've done everything I know to do to win them to Christ, but I can't win them. Would you and the preacher go visit them? And so uh, I said, all right. You say they live next to you. What can you tell me about them? She said, well, he's a railroader and he's a divorcee. She works and she's a divorcee. There are three children in the family. And she said, I think all of them are alcoholics. She said, I've done everything I know. They're pitiful. They need Christ. Her eyes fill. She said, uh, we should go visit them. So that afternoon, we visited the people the pastor wanted us to visit, and then I turned to Ed, and I said, Ed, Mrs. Davis told me about her neighbors and said she wished we would go visit them. So he said, all right, let's go. We went and banged on the door of a home, very small frame house, obviously poor people, girl came to the door and let us in, and we walked into a living room that had a bed in it and a sofa, and that was all. That was all the furniture. The sofa was large enough for three people to sit on it, and then just a bed. It was not even a chair in the living room. Well, uh, she went and got her mother, and 
So three of us sat on the sofa and the fourth person sat on the corner of the bed. You know, you go into a home like that and you look for an opportunity to talk about Christ. We hadn't been in that home talking. That conversation hadn't run 90 seconds. And this is not my style. But that conversation hadn't run 90 seconds until I found myself looking at that lady and say, say, are you a Christian? She looked straight back at me and said, oh, no, I'm not a Christian. And I said, well, wouldn't you like to be a Christian? And she said, of course I'd like to be a Christian. And I said, well, why, why aren't you a Christian if you want to be a Christian? She says, I don't know how to become a Christian. So I talked for a 60 seconds or so and said, well, let's pray together. And I don't think we'd been in that home five minutes until the four of us were down on our knees praying together. And you know, I was sort of captured. The thing moved so fast. And so uh, I turned to the preacher and I said, preacher, you pray. And he started praying. And he got halfway through his prayer when suddenly I realized that she was standing up. And so I looked up. And when I looked up, she had her jaw set and her face fixed in such a way that I knew she was angry. And I thought, what did we do that angered her? And she stood there for a moment and she looked down at her daughter and suddenly she dropped down on her knees, side of her daughter, and put her arm around her and said, honey, this is exactly what you need. He's come in my heart, now you let him in yours. And my mouth dropped open. And the preachers dropped open. And she took over. We watched spellbound while she led her, her daughter to Christ. Well, we, uh, what do you do? We, uh, we thanked the Lord and went on our way. And as we did, I noticed that the husband had come home right in the middle of that, and he peeked through the front door that had a glass on it and had gone around the house and come in the back. Well, I thought uh, we no point in pursuing anything further there, and it was getting later in the afternoon, and we had to get back, so we went back. That night, I looked down, and when I walked in the pulpit and looked down, on the second row was the husband and that lady and the daughter and a fellow who was going with one of the other daughters who was an ex-Navy man to go to Cup Rascal, and sitting next to him was another daughter. And uh, so that night, I preached on the spirit-filled life on the fact that believers need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I felt real strange doing that with them sitting there. But when I got through, I gave an invitation for Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I looked down, and as I looked down, I noticed that woman look up at her husband. I knew exactly what she was saying. You could see her lips move. She said, honey, this is exactly what you need. You go forward. She put her hand on his shoulder and piloted him out into the, into the aisle. And she piloted him forward until she had gotten him halfway to the altar, far enough forward that she knew if she turned around, he wouldn't go back. And as soon as she was sure he was going to go all the way to the altar, she turned around and went back and got her daughter, one of the three daughters. I could see her lips. She was saying, honey, this is exactly what you need. Come on. And she moved her out. And she got her all the most to the altar. She didn't go all the way. When she saw she had her far enough where she wouldn't come back, she went back, stood and looked that ex-Navy guy in the face, and he, she looked at him and she said, Charlie, this is exactly what you need. 
And so here he came as meek as a lamb, and she moved him. And then the third daughter came, and there they were. Three daughters, a husband, and a wife. And they knelt together. And that family found Christ. You know, uh, I remember praying with him. One of the most beautiful experiences I ever had. A family, all at once, including a fiancé, son-in-law-to-be. When it was over with, we were just kneeling there, looking at each other in awe. And suddenly the mother looked over at me with great distress in her face. And I thought, what's this? She looked straight at me and she said, preacher, let me ask you something. And I waited for something earth shaking. And she said, you don't think you had anything to do with this, do you? believed, but Paul believed 
worlds of people that came to know Christ because they found Christ through him. I want to thank you for the way you have. Tomorrow we're going to be in church in the morning and tomorrow night we're going to have a lot of town people and guests in. So I'd like to express to you my profound appreciation for the way you have prayed for me this week. I took this assignment with a substantial uh, uh, hesitancy. Uh, why should I preach in a fall revival here? And yet uh, it seemed to be the leading of God. And none of my fears were justified. And none of them were justified because of the way you have prayerfully, lovingly supported these services. God has been very good to us. Now, he's done some good things for us. I wish that in these closing 24 hours, we could unite our hearts in such a way that there won't be a person that should be brought to him during this time that will miss it. It would be marvelous if we could just get completed between now and this time tomorrow night what God wanted to do during this week, wouldn't it? That's determined by how we pray and how we obey. And one of the things I've appreciated is the atmosphere has been such that I believe it's been relatively easy for people to seek and to find Christ. And you've helped create that atmosphere by your own attitude and your own faith and your own prayer. And I want to thank you. Should we bow our heads together? I've no great I've made no great pitch to prepare for an invitation. But I couldn't afford to let you go if there's somebody here who should seek Christ without giving you a chance to come. It may be that even in this kind of a message, God has spoken to you and you know there are things in your heart that need to come out. If you want to be able to live so that when you get jostled, Christ is what comes out, you need to have him do something in your heart and in your life. If that's true, before we close, I'd like to give you an opportunity. If you come tonight, you won't come because of any pressure or even because of any emotional appeal. You'll only come because you know the need of your heart and you've decided you want what Christ has for you. If there's anybody like that, the invitation is yours. 